Welcome to the Capital City Crew Podcast. Join your hosts Jeff, Owen, Josh, and Herman as they dive deep into the game of Malifaux. Explore sophisticated strategies and creative combinations, but always remember in Malifaux, bad things happen. All right, hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the Capital City Crew Podcast. We are coming at you today doing a special first time, doing a, a special new format a hot takes show. So this is inspired by our good friend, Travis Wayforth, former host of the Max Value podcast, which was my favorite second edition pod. He would occasionally do podcasts where he'd solicit feedback from the community for hot takes, meaning a an opinion about the game, hopefully a spicy one. And then he, he and his co-hosts would debate them on his next show. So Big shout out to all the folks on The Weird Place who gave your takes. We're going to talk about some of them in today's episode, save some of them for future episodes. Uh, but we are going to talk about each of them uh, in a roundtable style. Joining me today, all the way from North Carolina, is Craig Shipman host of the Third Floor Wars podcast, which if you're listening to our podcast, you've probably already heard of him. But if you haven't, you should check it out. It's a great podcast. Uh, and it's what inspired us all to get into this. So welcome, Craig. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate you guys having me on. I've been enjoying your show. Awesome. Uh, and with me is the rest of the usual crew, Jeff, Josh, and Herman. So we're going to we're gonna really focus today's episode on overall balance and mechanics takes. We got some good takes about Explorer Society, but we're going to save those for another episode. For Look for that in your feed uh, in the near future. Uh, one last bit of housekeeping before we get started, and that is we now have a Patreon. So check that out. Look in the show notes. Every little bit helps us uh, to keep the show going and you know, pay for subscriptions to all the tools that we need to make this. So check that out become a patron today uh, and help make the podcast possible so with all that housekeeping out of the way i'm going to introduce our first hot take and then i'm going to open the floor for some hot discussion so the first take comes to us from brian ennis and this take is dead man's hand was bs and shouldn't have happened as they've now added more masters to several factions anyway. Just keep all the masters rather than taking our toys away. I, and I'm starting with this because this is probably the first hot take of all of Malva Third Edition when it was announced. Very contentious in the community and clearly even now quite a bit on in Malva Third, it still, uh, still rubs some folks the wrong way. So... I mean, I don't necessarily have a strong opinion about Dead Man's Hand. I haven't really ever even looked at the cards since beta. I know that they were tested lightly. So when people come in and like, you know, I would have liked to have my old models. Yeah, that's a nice thing. But a lot of people come from like the 40K world where models come in and out all the time. Production values change all the time. We're on like the 15th scalp of the Victorias or, you know, for whatever sake. And so a lot of times I think of it as people are just like, ooh, this seems really powerful in Dead Man's Hand. That'd be nice to have. Rather than, you know, I lost this master for fluff. Does it really matter if it's Lilith who's making terrain versus Titania who's making terrain? The play style still exists. It's just rules on a card to me. Well, I think Owen 
touched on, or the, the take touched on this, saying they're taking away our toys, and that is literal truth. You're taking models that existed in the game and essentially rendering them unplayable. Yes, they have cards, they have stats, but if you ask anyone about them, they'll be like, oh, these are overpowered, these weren't playtested, or as you literally just said, I haven't looked at these cards. They are essentially out of the running for any sort of use right now because they didn't get the proper testing. They didn't get a good design cycle. No one really cared about them. And as a result, they're either too good or too bad, but no one cares. And no one will ever fix them. And they've essentially just eliminated these interesting masters from the pool uh, with no real good way of putting them back in unless they just start from scratch and redo them. It's the... There's there's no point of them existing right now because no one's going to ever do anything with them unless they just remake them. And that is just just kind of pointless at this point. Ooh, disagreement. Craig, I think I got a disagreement from you. Big fan of Josh, but I completely disagree. Um, <laughs> so um, there's a few things. One, I guess my first question is, is if you had a choice, Josh, between Dead Man's Hand or getting new masters or a new faction what would you what would you prefer well that is a false choice because they were done at two different time frames and using resources from two different pools so i reject your assertion wholeheartedly <laughs> um but yes you I, I see what you're saying there having some some new exciting stuff is flashier for the game and probably good from a uh, game design development standpoint because having new material really encourages people to have more engagement with the game. So I agree with you in that sense that it's, it is better to have new masters than uh, just digging down too deep into the old ones. I'm, I'm going to jump in here real quick. And uh, just because I feel this needs to be brought up. Uh, Warhammer, both 40K and Fantasy, had been in a stagnant place for going on two decades where the storyline did not move at all weird actually moves the storyline along with the you know some of these characters dying off and you can still use them but they're died off the storyline is actually progress progressing the problem with warhammer was when they decided to progress the storyline it literally killed one of their games so it's good for us not to get in a, in a stagnation point where we're just sitting around not progressing and then we when we finally decide to progress everybody decides to leave the game wholeheartedly because uh it, it's different than what they're used to this is the running trend of malifo malifo storyline does progress so so and I completely agree. And I do like that. I like that they um, it was a ballsy move. Um, but here's another way to think about it, Josh. Um, the most successful and biggest tabletop competitive game there is is Magic the Gathering. Right. And I don't think anything comes close, um, including Warhammer. Um, part of the reason Magic has been able to live for as long as it has is because of rotation. They bring cards in and they bring cards out. And that has been essential for the life of Magic the Gathering. And there have been hundreds, hundreds of collectible card games that have come and gone. And and they did not rotate. And that's part of the reason that they died. Um, so it, it's good for the health of the game. The idea that we can just keep growing the model base is, is just impossible. There's just no way. Um, there, there's no way that that is, that's tenable or, or could be good for the game. And we know that weird has to put out new models, right? Us playing in our basement with the models we bought five years ago is what killed Warhammer fantasy. That's why Warhammer fantasy died. 
um, because people stopped buying models and we, we weird has to make new models. They have to put new models out and that's a reality. And in, for us to have a game as balanced as it is, they're going to have to retire models. Um, I, you mentioned the false, uh, false choice with, um, Dead Man, Hand, Dead Man Hand and Explorers. I don't think that is a false choice at all. I think you can't have one without the other, um, which which gets to my point. Um, but it's also, um, you know, it, it's a false choice to say that we're we're just we're just going to keep the same models. We're going to keep them growing, and that the design that that the design space for a balanced game is is infinite. Because I don't think that's the case. I I gotta push back a little on the magic analogy. Well, I do agree with you that having rotation in a game and turnover helps drive the creativity of it. I think a, the investment of time, energy, and, and like ownership in a card or even like a deck that rotates is different than a model you assemble and paint and like, this is your thing. We're talking about two different things though, right? So like, like, I understand what you're saying, right? Like, trust me, if Lilith was the only crew I had in 2E, I, I'd be, I'd be ticked off and that's a whole separate issue. And that and I'm not even talking about that. What I'm talking about is, is design space in order to have a balanced ecosystem, right? And in order to have a game where things are relatively balanced, you have to, it has to have limits. You can only have so many models in there. Look at, look at what's hap- happened to uh warm where they they stupidly said we're never going to retire models, and, and now I mean, what is it weekly that they put out erratas for that game because they can't? They, there's no way they can stay ahead of it. They they just can't. You have to put limits on it, or we're not going to have that. We're not going to have a balanced game that's going to be completely out of control. So yes, I, I might no way am I trying to equate a, 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 an attachment to a model to a to a magic card. That's completely different. I, I'm talking more as as from a design perspective, right? From a design perspective, we have to have limits in order for us to have a, a viable ecosystem. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes it sense. It does. Um, I think the part about Dead Man's Hand that is galling in this particular context is that they didn't retire the models. I completely the models agree. are so, still there. I agree. It, you but and they're I there. Yep. Yeah. They're there yeah, in a they, useless fashion. And that they should have never made cards for them. I could not agree more. They should have just said for now they're gone. And someday, someday there might be a new Lilith. There might be a new Nicodem, but there's no, there is no M3E Nicodem. There's no M3E Lilith. Completely agree. They should yeah. have just and, done it. And, and piggybacking on that, one of the things that uh, that I really liked uh, was literally every one of the masters that is Dead Man's Hand right now has a way back into the game in a rotation. Ramos is gone; they don't know where he went. Uh, Nicodem died, but Nicodem is a resurrection. Uh, he's a resurrectionist. Uh, he may be able to bring himself back. Somebody else can bring him back. Colodi, uh, his head still exists on a wall in a study in Lucius's study. Lucius is never born. At any point in time, he could build a, a body and put that head back on. And then, uh, who is the? Uh, there's one other one that I'm forgetting that uh, is literally just gone right now and can li- come back. At, oh, uh, Ty- or Lilith. She's locked in uh, Kythera right now. At any point in time, she can be released. And they have plans, obviously, of bringing uh, Lilith back at some point. So literally all of these masters that got Dead Man's Hand can come back into rotation, which I think was a great plan by Weird. But I think we are generally all in agreement that they should not have been cards in this edition. I yeah. agree. Because the cards they have are not good yep. and they could not be brought back in their form. So I'm going to uh, 
dare to disagree with the Craig on one of these big points that I hear over and over again is when you talk about model bloat and skew bloat. And I don't actually think that is a reasonable limitation that a game like Malifaux will ever hit. Uh, you can go like, you know, again, using privateer press, using Warhammer, uh, 40k, warm, um, what was their other one called? Age of Sigmar. Those games, one exists, two, they're successful to some degree, and they have grossly more models, more skew than anything Malifaux has. Like this same argument came up over and over and over again when I was playing competitive War Machine. And I think that their Malifaux has things that make it superior to War Machine and handling that. But even War Machine, we calculated it out, you know, a couple of years ago. It would take them 10 years to catch up to just what 40K has as far as SKUs go. I mean, you pull up Space Marines, every single Space Marine army has 100 SKUs. And you compare that to then just the uh, Malifaux factions. I think a couple of things that Malifaux has that really go to extend the life of that, to give you more options for all these different models, is the fact that you have gaining grounds, is the fact that you have schemes and strategies where you can create more niche pieces that fulfill that certain thing, that certain category within that um, crew, within that faction, within that keyword. And so I don't think that that's a limitation you'll ever reasonably hit. But it's something they hear over and over again as an argument. Uh, so a couple thoughts on that, Herman. One, uh, putting up 40K as an example of how we should have a balanced game is probably a bad first move. Um, second, um, I don't think you're right, um, but I don't have anything to prove that. Um, I, I I wish I had the, I hear it's terrible, but I wish I had that 40K app. I have a hard time believing that it's 100 different units. I was just going by excuse off their web stores. Because like if you just pull up their web store, Space Marines 100, Black Templars 100, Blood Angels 100, Dark Angels 100. Yeah, but those are those are boxes that those are those are repackages, right? Right, they're packages that have Marines for this and di different packages. Like if you go in and build a Space Marine army right now, I don't think I think you've got I want to say thirty different units. Um, and then how many different armies? Um, I think it's probably comparable because you remember a unit of Space Marines is equivalent to one model in Malifaux. Right. Because because it's a different scale. Um, one's a skirmish game, one's not. Um, but it, 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 I don't think you're right, Herman, saying that. Um, I mean, right now, I still think there, I think there's too many models in um, in Malifaux to keep it as balanced as I'd like it to be. I think that they could have I, th I think they could have gone even farther, um, but I'm not a designer. So I, I'm literally talking out of my rear end. I don't know what I'm talking about, but um, I wouldn't have been mad if they had consolidated even more, um, especially especially considering how much cool, wacky stuff is coming out with Explorers. Um, I think it's much healthier for the game to retire, retire 50 models and put out 50 new ones. So just looking at, so just on the, on the, GW point and probably listeners, please check this and comment on our posts and tell us if we're right or not. But um, just a cursory look, I feel like Kerman is correct on quantity, but probably not like wildly more than Malifaux. I mean, there are a lot of models in Malifaux. What is it like 500, 600 models across all the factions? Look at, look at each faction, each keyword. And each keyword's got what, at least... 15 models in it, right? It's reasonable to estimate about 80 models. It's about 80 models per faction because the keyword average was 10 because you have a model at 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10 soul stones, a master and a totem. Right, and vers versatile is another 5 or 6, right? But yeah, I mean, I think I think there's probably a sweet spot, right, of you. there needs to be 
you can't just create models forever, but yet the nature of this business is that you have to make new models in order to sell models. So, I mean, I, I think a direction that I hope they go with is, uh, is making use of maybe like new versions of masters. Like I would love to rotate out, uh, keywords and give like a new keyword even have the same models or release new sculpts, right? So like people go by the new sculpts and they're cool. Um, let's say like, like you could even take, take a master and change their keyword and have a different mix of models and have a totally different type of feel. I mean, I think a lot of design space there. I think it'd be exciting, Owen, if in a year from now, they literally took 25% of every keyword and said, there's no more cards for them. You can't play these anymore. And they put out, I mean, how exciting would that be for my four keywords that I play to have like a dozen new models to add and to bring in and to buy and to paint? I mean, we're lying to ourselves if we we don't get excited about having models to buy and new things to try and stuff like that. That's what we love about the game. Um, uh, oh, man, that and, would be such a contentious thing oh, right there because no it, it just feels like a... a GW money grab at that point, even if they're a perfectly legitimate, wholly reasoned out balance and playability reasons for it, it's still going to just rub a lot of people the wrong way. I, I it's a don't huge, know. It's a huge feel bad. Um, well, yeah. well let, let's be honest. If those models that they phased out were the models that everyone considers to be worthless, people wouldn't feel bad about it because they're already not seeing the table. But on top of that, like this design space this is one of those things what I liked about weird where they started implementing uh, these alternate crews. And that is a great way of getting new models out. And I think that's a genius idea. I would uh, suggest to weird to push that out more. That Molly crew that came out was fantastic. Everybody loved it. The new Pandora crew. That is a great way of selling models without, uh, you having to revise rules or it's just a brand new flood of things uh, of intake and income for weird without them having to uh, do the design work for it. Yeah, I agree. And I don't have any numbers to back this up though. I would venture to guess that the resculpts don't sell as well as something like a, a new Cooper box would. Right. So having completely new models, I would expect would sell better, but I agree, Jeff, it's a great space for them to, to keep the model churn going and, and not impact it. Um, the base, um, but, you know, and part of the, so you're hundred percent right about the feels bad, uh, hundred percent. Right. But to a certain degree, um, it's about setting expectations too, which is gets back to, you know, they should have just not made cards for Lilith and Nicodem. Um, if you just say out of the gate, look, here's what, here's what we do, right? Every year there's going to be 10% of the, of the line is going to get retired and we're going to bring in new models and that's what we do. And, and you know, that coming into it, that'll help that a little bit. Um, and, and, uh, half-assing it kind of like they did with dead's man hand a little bit, I think hurts that. Um, uh, which ties to what we did agree on. But yeah. So any, any last thoughts on this take before we go to a quick break for our next hot takes, we'll have to come up with the keyword that just gets completely scrapped and replaced with something better. It's easy for Resurrect because that's just red Chappelle. Nerf Leviticus. <laughs> no, you keep your hands <laughs> off my Leviticus. And, that, and, and, don't, and don't you dare touch Seamus. What are you talking yeah. about? All right. I didn't say Seamus. I said Red Chappelle. Well, first of all, it's Chapel, <laughs> not Dave Chappelle. <laughs> Red, Red Chappelle. 
<laughs> Red Chappelle. Um, All right. Save those thoughts. Let's keep, let's uh, actually, listeners, why don't you let us know in the comments on this one if you had to cut a keyword in Malifaux in your faction, not someone else's faction and not the one you play against that you hate playing against, who would it be and which one and why? We'd love to hear about that uh, and maybe we'll do an episode about it. Uh, but with that, we'll go to a quick break and when we get back, we will be talking about injured. Hello. Do you like our podcast and want to ensure that it continues to run? Maybe you want to hear our outtakes on unedited footage, or perhaps you're just flush with cash and you like being generous. Either way, we've set up a Patreon just for you. If you like us, please consider donating. Our Patreon can be located in the show notes. If not, we're all pretty sure that it's Herman's fault. Either way, if you like our show, go ahead and leave us a comment. Thanks. Right. Welcome back, everyone. We are going to talk about two takes in this next little segment. And these are both takes from folks who have comments about things uh, being not good for the game or being negative play experiences. So first, we're going to go to Lewis Phillips. He His take is that injured is a worse condition than paralyzed. Uh, now, I'm actually not sure reading this now whether he meant injured is like a worse condition for a model to have, like it is worse to be injured than paralyzed or whether he means that as a condition to be in the game, it is worse than paralyzed, which are, I think are actually two, two different things. Um, although he does then say it is actively bad for the game. So I'm going to guess that he means he, he doesn't like having injured at all. Um, so reactions folks, I, Craig, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, sure. So the read on that is what I, I agree with you all. And I think what he's saying is that, you know, if you think paralyzed is bad for the game, injured is bad for the game. It's, and it's even even worse than paralyzed. Um, uh, I happen to disagree. Um, I think that injured is a far more interesting condition than paralyzed. Um, if someone were to say, Craig, I, with a wave of a hand, I'm going to make half of your crew injured too, or I'm going to make half your crew paralyzed. I think it's pretty obvious which of those two I would choose. So, um, you know, it, it's better. It's a better, better for the player to have your stuff have being injured two or injured three for crying out loud than it is for it to be paralyzed. As far as bad for the game, I think it's very, it's one of the things that I, one of the conditions that they added that I loved. I thought it, it made things very interesting. It, um, it, it, it make, it allows the designers to have defense six and defense seven in the game. Uh, because injured exists. Um, if injured didn't exist, that would make anything with that with with stat seven for for a defense or a willpower, you know, just horrible <laughs> to play against. But um, injured injured changes that. So um, uh, I think that if someone said I'd had to give up one or the other, I'd, I would give up paralyzed long before I give up injured. I find injured to be far more interesting. Yeah, I, I've got to agree with you there, Craig. So right before Malfoy Third launched, uh, Herman, uh, Neverborn player on this show, who is a very big fan of Pandora, had on several occasions in games with me paralyzed like my entire crew. Uh, so I, I know very well the pain of not being able to do something. Like it just feels. It bad. was a defense mechanism. Uh huh. She was scared. 
Uh-huh. So, scared or scary? Yeah. And, well, all of them. So, but yeah, I think, I think it gives, it's a way to, well, I mean, it's different. It's fundamentally different, right? Because it's helping make it easier to kill your opponent, not making your opponent not do stuff. Um, but I, I think as a way to give a debuff play style in the game, it's, it's, it feels less bad for your opponent because they still can do stuff and they can mitigate it. Uh, and it does give a way to deal with problem models or to make weak models strong. Like that's another thing is it brings, if you have a bunch of crappy zombies who are on stat three or stat four, you stack some injured on a target. Suddenly those guys are scary melee monsters. Um, so yeah, I, I got to disagree on this one, uh, but I really appreciate them taking the time to, to give us this take. Uh, Josh, other thoughts? Yeah, I'm in agreement with, with you and uh, Craig that I think what differentiates paralyzed from injured is that injured is a much more tactically interesting condition. There's a lot more play that can go around injured. You can have other models that capitalize on injured. You can make the decision between removing injured or not based on whether or not it's worth spending the AP just to make a model slightly more resilient. If a model is at full wounds and your opponent doesn't have a lot of resources uh, left to kill it, maybe you leave the injured on there and have your uh, condition removal model do something else. For paralyzed, it was always the worst thing because that meant you didn't have a model. And it also chewed up your activation. So it pen sort of penalized you twice, and there was no real decision-making process. You always removed paralysis if you could. You always tried to avoid it if you could. There was no thought behind it. Whereas there is some, some thought to both avoid and capitalize on injured in M3E. So I think it just makes a better tactical play style to have injured rather than paralyzed. So Jeff, are you gonna are you gonna tell us about why having a parasite is actually the worst condition in Malifaux? No, I think we all know why having a parasite is the worst condition in Malifaux. That's not a condition, though. Um, I, what I will say is I don't, uh, and I apologize to uh, Mr. Phillips. I don't think you're gonna find any competitive gamer that's going to agree with this hot take uh, simply because the assist action exists and it can remove uh, burning, distracted, or injured within two inches of another model by a one, two, three flip. So if you're worried about injured that much, take a couple of lower soulstone models that don't matter, move them next to that injured model and remove it. It's not that big of a deal. You know, I, I have to say that that it's, it's good to reiterate that assist is a thing because I know I forget about it and there's definitely times you saying that where I'm like, oh shit, that I should have just assisted my guy. Like, why did I just sit there taking it? Right. So like, it's a good reminder that that is a thing you can do. Um, and it sometimes is the right use of an action point. Um, so why don't we move on to the next take? And this is about, well, this comes from Andres Schwartz, whose take is, Offensive irreducible damage should be removed from the game. Spicy take. Who wants to why, leave this? So off? Real, this is me being stupid, but why? Why specifically offensive? Is there defensive irreducible damage? I, I'm not quite sure of that distinction. There is. So there are abilities like um, Leviticus. Siphon power. 
Yeah, siphon power, Leviticus hurting himself. Right, right, right. Um, yep. Okay. Yep. Yeah, good question. Yep. I'm going to comment on this one first uh, because I actually have a strong opinion on this. <clears throat> I do not feel like offensive irreducible damage should be removed. However, Craig and I have had this discussion down at a tournament in North Carolina. I feel that the when it's set, that should be its set uh, damage, and it's usually a two, three, four damage track. I do not believe that models like Leviticus should be able to increase its irreducible damage. I think it should be kept low, but I think you should have options of this crew has armor, this crew has a lot of soul stones, whatever it is. I'm bringing this thing, and I know it will reliably do two, three, four damage, and that is my plan. Uh, as opposed to, I'm bringing this model and it's going to do six irreducible damage and there's nothing you can do about it. So I think the irreducible can be toned down a little bit, but I don't think it should be taken off the table entirely. I, I'm willing to I'm willing to give on that one, actually, Jeff. And in fact, I, I would go even a little bit further that I would like it not to be a variable flip, right? To just have it set that like, you know, like Molly, right? Molly's irreducible. Um, it's just, it's two, period. That's the end of the story. And either it's worth it or it's not worth it. Um but yeah, it's it's when it gets it's when it's five irreducible, or even four, <laughs> but six irreducible. Come on, I mean that's that's just terrible. That's just terrible, and it removes agency, which is the problem I have with it. I would like to see them use it more. Like now that you've mentioned it as a flat flip, I wouldn't mind them changing Seamus's gun to four irreducible damage, just flat four. Yep. And I think that would actually make he would be very scary. Uh, and you wouldn't have to do the limit of once per turn or, uh, you know, maybe uh, do something similar to Cooper where you can fire it twice. Eight irreducible. He's scary, but he's not overpowered. Uh, I don't think Seamus would be anywhere near as scary with a just flat four damage, even if that four damage was irreducible. Because it lacks the potential to casually remove a fairly large model from the board. I agree with the the sentiment that Six irreducible damage is probably a lot, but it is kind of the defining feature of a single model. And I think that's how I would I would have irreducible damage or offensive irreducible damage in the game. It should be the defining trait of a model. And that should be taken into consideration when you're doing that stuff. You shouldn't casually pass out the ability to do irreducible damage. That should be a model shtick. It's like a curio shtick, it's Leviticus's shtick. It shouldn't be something that models like commonly get just because it's good and i mean i think one of the things that makes it feel kind of bad just from a knee-jerk perspective is it's very unevenly distributed throughout the different factions and different models within the game like there is no irreducible in everborn for example so that's just it's not an option that uh, people playing that army get a chance to experience oh you get to experience it just from the other side yeah we just fight ikirio my most hated model in malfo Heart. Heart. Well, to be fair, in a faction that has Zoraida, uh, you don't necessarily need uh, irreducible damage. Right. Technically, she gives you irreducible damage because she can obey it, right? <laughs> oh, that, that's true. So you are wrong, Herman. <laughs> that's that. Yeah. I, 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 I disagree. I don't know. I, and part of that is... I play Levy, and y'all y'all hate on Levy all the time. Leave my boy alone. But like, I think as long as it's used somewhat sparingly, I think it's fine. I I wouldn't have minded it if they had made soul stones 
be able to be used against it. Like that wouldn't have bothered me. And I think that might've actually gone a long way to, to mitigating the feel bad. Um, but I, I think it's important to have ways to get around armor and, uh, and shielded and um, incorporeal. I just want to throw this out there because weird, weird can't see all of us here nodding our heads. I think this is a universal uh, uh, agreement that, of what Owen just said. Irreducible damage should still be able to, to be prevented by soul stones. By stones. But here's the, here's the thing I have with it though, Owen. So I agree. I mean, you have to have ways to get around incorporeal, ways to get around armor. What we're talking about is something that gets around all of it. Right. So it's one thing to have, you know, armor piercing and, and this ignores armor or this in, ignores incorporeal. It's it's the nature of you don't have to think about it uh, there. You know, it, it regardless of what crew I bring against Levy, he's going to get through all of it. Um, so it, it, I can't just shift from armor to shielded. I can't shift to incorporeal to to deal with it. Um, um, True. And, and I'm arguing against myself a little bit because I am not of the camp that uh, Levy is completely bonkers, out of control, overpowered either. Um, I think that I think that he is he is definitely beatable, but he's not he's not somebody that you're going to beat the second time you play against it. I thought irreducible is a pretty elegant solution to the idea that you have people like Leviticus. They wanted to have a model that got around defensive features without having to just in specify every single defensive feature that it penetrates because then you get stuff later on down the road where they slightly change the name, but it does the same thing. And Oh, look, your power no longer works. It was the, uh, the second ed, uh, Yanlo. No, it was first ed Yanlo where, uh, Izamu had a different type of armor that wasn't armor. So you had the giant suit of armor that didn't have the armor ability because armor wasn't as good as what they gave him. And, and having irreducible where just blanket gets through uh, reduction tech, uh, simplify that. And that was one of the big efforts that they had when they were developing M3E is to simplify things. And I think irreducible did a very good job at that. Point well made. I, I don't think it should be on... This is just, I, I think it should be in the game. I don't think it should be on minion type models, particularly like the Brock Inspector, uh, the, where it's a summonable model that just gets irreducible damage. I like that it's low on it, but I don't think, I think it should be specialty case uh, scenarios. Brock Inspector is just a shadowy Akirio. It's really weird. That is true. Um, I mean, the other, the other thing too, what do we think about things like, precise right so dr mcmorning the mecharachnid which that that model has has caused lots of consternation right those are close it's minus the soul stone ignoring but plus hard to kill hard to wound ignoring um oh and i guess minus incorporeal ignoring. so it, it ignores the armor and the shielded and adds hard to kill ignoring which is real rough like hard to kill is probably the best defensive ability in the game. I agree. Um, Second best now that uh, Jedza exists, but <laughs> true. But yeah, beyond like yeah. specialty, yeah. Um, beyond not being able to get killed at all. <laughs> precise uh, doesn't get around, uh, or precise doesn't affect range attacks, which I think is one of the big restrictions on it. Which actually 
comes up on McMorning, one of the iconic models to have precise, uh, because it no longer applies to his expunge void uh, anymore. Good point. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh no. You mean you can't ignore everything with your seven damage hits? Well, when it's the entire shtick of your guy, again, we get back to Leviticus, it's the entire shtick of your guy, uh, it makes sense to have it on your master doing it. Well, I'll tell you right now, there's probably a reason why they did that, Josh, because uh, I played Resurrectionists in 2nd Edition along with several other factions, but uh, transplanting a whole bunch of poison from one model to another and then doing two seven blast hits, McMorning could kill anyone he wanted. I know, it was great, but... (laughs) (laughs) Don't take away our toys, is that what we're saying? (laughs) It was our first point, don't take away my toys. You Uh, should just dead man handle all that stuff. Ooh, ooh. Them's fighting words. <laughs> oh, man. Nathan Hoyle said zero inch, uh, zero inch reach attacks might as well not exist unless their effect is extremely strong or the model is specifically made to mitigate it. So uh, m- just because I'm the one speaking right now, I am going to disagree with this for the simple reason of I have used zero inch reach models uh, first of all, Slippery is awesome with the new Explorer Society. Uh, hats off to Weird. I love that ability. Um, but I've used zero-inch reach models to hold models in place, uh, particularly as an example, a model with Don't Mind Me, where uh, they can uh, try to walk around and pick up a, uh, a scheme marker or pick up uh, some strategy marker. Well, the zero-inch reach means that they cannot walk away from you unless they do a disengage. Now, for the don't mind me, it doesn't matter as much. But uh, if you have a model that, uh, you know, they just want to kind of move to the side a little in order to get a, a two-inch reach attack on something, they can't do that. They cannot, they literally have to remain in base contact with this zero-inch reach model or do a disengage. Those are the only two options you have. So I think that's one of the big reasons. Don't look at it, you're, if you only look at it from an offensive point uh, of view, yes, zero-inch range attacks suck. But if you look at it from a defensive point of view, they're pretty good. Well, and think bigger picture, too. And as we transitioned from two to three, one of the things that they did is they overall shrunk engagements, right? So if you remember in 2E, we had much larger engagement ranges versus where we have it in in, in three. And that's been a good thing because it, it is it – is, balanced out board control so that board control is not as critical in three as it was in two. Um, and a big part of that is the fact that they went, you know, two inches, two inches, a big deal now where before two inch was not that big of a deal. And now it's a huge deal. And in order for the two to be a big deal, you have to have zero. You heard it here first folks. Craig says two inches is a big deal. It is. It is. So, so I'm going to have to disagree or sorry, sorry disagree with you all agree with Nathan on this take. I, I just, I really, really dislike zero inch in a miniatures game. And a lot of that is geometry based, right? Like the difference between two inches and one inch is, you know, it's important, but it's massively different between one inch and zero inches because you're trying to position circles that have to interact with other circles and with terrain. Like it is very easy to position a model so that you're at least within an inch or hell, even half an inch, but requiring you to touch the base of another model is like significantly limits the movement and means that you have to be way more precise 
with how, how you are moving, where you can move to. You have to measure more precisely. Calculating where you can be is much more complicated. It slows the game down to, to do it, I think, a bit. Uh, and it also just, there's a lot of times where you're like, well, like, I, it's such so annoying to get into zero inch melee. Like, it better be worth it to get there, right? Like, I'm not saying we can't have it, but I think that it, there should be a good reason to have it, not just, oh, well, I guess we'll shrink this and have it be zero. Well, keep Carter. in mind, uh, sorry, Josh, uh, keep in mind uh, with what you're saying, this also leaves design room of now maybe a model itself may be hazardous terrain where now you're in zero inch, you are co technically considered to be uh, in that hazardous terrain because you're in base to base with it where normally you wouldn't be. Uh, go ahead, Josh, sorry. Well, the geometry part is extremely frustrating. If you look at just the actual space behind it, uh, a model of zero inch melee it's almost impossible for you to ever engage more than two models at one time because that would require them to be in the exact perfect positioning on the board to have those three tangent lines intersect with the single model. So you're never going to be able to engage uh, more than two models at one time. But on the other side, uh, making the board less cluttered, I thought was a really good change. Going from three inch, two inch, one inch melee down to two one zero did free up board space, allows for more interesting tactical positioning where you're avoiding stuff, even though it makes getting into engagement for those zero inch melee models harder. So I think the avoiding part, uh, gaining in those grounds is more important than what is lost by having the tactical positioning of zero inch melee be so finicky. I, I do think the, the changes that they made with slippery uh, are pretty interesting in terms of making zero inch melee models viable it's a shame that those will only be on uh, newer models and not some of the older stuff that also has zero inch melee. Which could change, but yeah. Which could change. Yeah, sure, yeah, they could. And, and so I understand what you're saying about it being harder. It's harder for the person that owns the model with a zero inch range, right? That, that's definitely true. I don't know if it slows the game down because it's a lot easier to say it's in base contact than me to pull my widget out and say it's within one or within two. Um, but you know, figuring out how to get him engaged so he can yeah. make the attack, it, it's, it's more difficult to do that, but I don't think it's slower. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, no, and, 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 right. the, and, and the zero inch is far more common, uh, than a one inch or a two inch engagement range in, in tabletop gaming. I mean, you look at Carnival and like there is there, you're in base to base or you're not, um, or Carnival, I should say. Um, so, um, the the concept honestly of, of a one inch and a two inch engagement range is, is something a little unique to Malifaux in some ways. You don't see it as much as just base to base. But I think there's other stuff though too. So another complaint I will have about it uh, is the flavor. Like engagement ranges in general in Malifaux, there are some where the flavor to me doesn't really make a lot of sense. Like you'll have a height three giant horse with zero inch engagement range and you have like a zombie with a one like why like why that doesn't make any sense like how zombies do have arms the the pile of uh spiders and deer skeletons hasn't having two inch melee is just weird <laughs> well or a huge crow 
<laughs> that has not, zero yeah. engagement. Yeah. No, it, I, no, they I, spit that, bugs. Yes, and that should be a range attack and have a gun, not a two-inch claw. All right, whatever. <laughs> uh, so we're a little divided on this one. Uh, I love the next one we're going to go over, but do you want to head to a break first? Yes. So when we get back, we're going to talk quite a bit, I'm sure, about summoning. So stick with us, and we'll see you in a sec. All right, welcome back. So we are going to talk about a spicy take and a contentious one, which is about the topic of summoning. So Joseph uh, Girard says, summoning, even with pass tokens, is an objectively unbalanceable mechanic in the action point economy, which is why summoning masters will always outperform other archetypes. So, what do we think about summoning? So, the, the, I think the first thing that needs to be discussed is either either you're going to allow summoning or you're not, right? Um, and I like summoning in the game. Um, I think it's I think it is a, it's something that's neat about Malifaux. Uh, Malifaux is not the only one that does it, but from a flavor perspective, all of the summoners and the way they summon, especially the unique ways that they made summoning. Summoning is so different now. And it wasn't two. It was very kind of a vanilla ability in two. Whereas now, I mean, you've got all these different ways that it happens from Von Stuck's way of summoning to Karai's way of summoning um, to Dreamer's way of summoning to Tara's way of summoning. I love it. I love that it's in the game. Um, uh, but it, it, it would be easier from a design perspective, I would imagine, to not have it, to, which is a little bit to Joe's point. Um, to say it's objectively unbalanceable, I think the only way we could say that is if we were in a situation where every summoner and every faction was the the dominant master, um, which it is for some and it isn't for others. Um, and I think that the guardrails that they put on summoning and the way they changed how summoning works in three went a long way. Um to to help rein it in so i wonder a little bit if joe has a little bit of 2e hangover um because it was a it was a problem um in 2e and part of that was because of how much of a bigger issue activation control was or how much e how much easier it was to get activation control I say. um so i agree that it's a tougher design space i disagree that it's objectively unbalanceable that part i disagree with so why don't we go to our resident summoning extraordinaire from the Rezzers faction, Josh. I would say that's a little bit of a hyperbolic assessment of me, but I, I don't think that it's correct to say that summoning is objectively unbalanceable. Uh, even if we take it in, in a reasonable interpretation of that and not say that it's literally impossible to know because all permutations are impossible to know. But even if we just look at the summoners that we currently have in the game, and even the ones that are considered some of the best in their faction, you have to look at not just the fact that they have summoning, but the context behind why that model or that, that particular crew is considered some of the best. Like Von Stuck or Sandeep, or Terra, though people's opinions have changed on Terra since both the gaining grounds changes 
and some of the uh, changes that were made to her models. It's not just the fact that they have summoning. It's you have to look at the entire picture of the crew. Sandeep, summoning big nasty golems. It's not just summoning a big nasty golem. It's summoning a big golem with like focus seven and having a constantly replenishable supply of cards in hand. Uh, if you just reduce that down to the summoning is the problem, you're ignoring all of the other issues that are inherent to the crew. So you have to look at not just the summoning as being the sole source of the problem and look at what the models that are summoning are and what they're capable of doing. I can hold up Karai as an example. Her summoning is really strong. She has summons in good models, but they're not necessarily models that are amazing at scoring victory points in a heavy scheme pool. You're not summoning in models that are instantly dropping scheme markers the, the turn that they're brought in. You're not summoning in stuff that is, is, is doing interact actions very readily. You're summoning in beaters. And in that context, you can deal with that. You can out-scheme her in that capacity, even though she's bringing more models into play by just playing against her strengths. So it's not the summoning that I think is the issue. I think it's you have to look at the entirety of the crew to see why summoning master is considered very good. Jeff, you, you do it. Yeah, so um, as I mentioned on the, the podcast previously, my two go-tos, the things that I've liked the most in Malifaux have been summoners and obey masters. And I can tell you from a summoning standpoint, when I play summoners, people do not realize they see me bring a, bring a model in and they say, oh, you just gained two AP from bringing this model in. But what you don't see is that uh, uh, Seamus or that... Um, the Lady Justice, when she came and got herself into position, because summoners have to set things up, particularly things like Dreamer. When If I were to spend that time setting up a Lady Justice kill, and I were to jump in and use that Severe for Lady Justice to kill your model, you are now down to AP. It is no different, uh, like, it's still the same amount of AP. My master is still using an AP to make a swing in the overall team's AP. What you need to start looking at things as is summoners try to win through attrition where uh, melee masters and strong beater masters try to win by forcing you to lose uh, effectiveness with your crew. And actually those are the two best uh, melee or the two best archetypes to go against each other. Somebody that is very strong in uh, damage versus a summoner. And if you throw your strong damage person at them without letting them build up, that is some of the fastest games you'll go through and you'll usually find you're the winner because they can't summon. They're too busy defending themselves. Well, and the summoner himself is, is a point of weakness, right? Um, you take out the summoner and you eliminate a lot. Um, so, you know, putting pressure on the summoner in most cases is, is a good play. Um, and, uh, I like what I, that's a point I've never heard articulated that way, Jeff. And I, I like that a lot, which is, it's, is the net effect, the net a AP balance is what you're talking about. And it's, and it's a really good point, um, to bring up. I think that, I think two things that are key with summoning that, that things that need to be thought about how versatile is the, are the summons, which we kind of talked about a little bit, right? Uh, that was the Nicodem problem. Nicodem could bring in the exact tool he needed at the at the time because he had such a huge pool to summon from. So limiting that, uh, limiting the amount of summons with the upgrades was it was a phenomenal move um, that that helped things a lot. The pass token mechanic helps as far as uh, you you you're never forced into act to losing activation control. You, you have to you have a way of mitigating that um, that agency. The one other part. 
that that becomes contentious and this gets into Sandeep a little bit is uh, we like to see there be a resource constraint on our summoners. And when you have summoners that don't have those resource constraints that they can always summon. Um, so Sandeep with an, Sandeep combined with a ton of card draw, that's, that's where things get a little rough. Um, but um, back to Oh yeah, to to your point, uh, summer uh, right. where he can choose to discard one of the. I don't. I don't think that is good for the balance of the game. He shouldn't take a mechanic that's used to limit summoning and just throw it out the window with a di- an additional suit. I don't. I don't like that mechanic. But uh, that's just me. I actually like the mechanic, but but it but it makes it tougher, right? The job is tougher from a balance perspective, um, and and learning how to exploit those things, you know, over time. Um, but. Um, I think we do agree. Does anybody think summoning should be out of the game? I think we all like having it yeah, in the game, I, don't no, we? I think we all like it. I, my, yeah. I'm going to semi-agree with the take in the sense that in a vacuum, the ability to just ex- add AP to your crew by summoning a model can cause an exponential snowballing effect. Mm-hmm. And I think we saw a lot of that in, in second edition. Um, so that means that if you're going to have a summoning mechanic in the game, there have to be constraints on it. Um, I think the second edition, and I guess this edition too, Asami flicker concept of like, you're spending AP for a temporary model was a great, a great way to do it. Yep. Um, or, or cases where like you can summon like Tara, she can summon, like one or two, like she's going to summon maybe one or two guys mm-hmm. and you're not going to have more. You're not snowballing them, but, and they also start buried, right? Like ways where there's some interesting aspect to it. And it's more of a utility rather than just, Oh, I just get free extra dudes. And so I just get better as I go. Well, um, and the fa- the failing of willpower duels from dreamer is nice. So, right. That gives some agency and whether you're going to allow, or you have an opportunity to help prevent um, that from happening. Um, the Von Stuck requiring a two-step process in order to do a summon, I think is very cool as well. And that gets to what I was saying, which is I love the variety of summoning that we have now. Um, both, both uh, Von Stuck and Asami are summoners. They're completely different, which is cool. Uh Oh, sorry. I'm going to throw this out there uh, just because uh, I know in our next Hot Take episode, we're going to be very Explorers Society heavy. And I think English Ivan is going to be brought up in that podcast, but it's not going to be because of his summoning. I think his summoning is some of the most balanced in the game where uh, I play, played against a crew was actually a Masaki crew where they didn't bring any willpower over five. So I couldn't summon a Brock Inspector. <laughs> they had control over my summoning. Uh, so I think that's excellent. I think you're going to, he's going to pop up for his, uh, distracted mechanic and the, uh, the, uh, concealment and, and all that. That's the reason people are going to have huge problems with him. but his summoning is, is very balanced on one hand, lower summons on the other, he's attacking willpower. So, you know, I think the, the balance behind that is, is very fascinating and we'll get into that next time. He's a super, it's a super interesting master and a super interesting keyword. Have to look at the crews in their entirety rather than just focusing in on this crew's powerful and also a summoner. Amen. Therefore, it's because of summoning the correlation versus causation thing. Uh, 
Von Stuck is not Von Stuck is not considered one of the top Reser masters because of his summoning. Yeah, no, not because of that. <laughs> no, that's that's very true. It's because of everything else. <laughs> yeah. The summoning um, is just delicious, delicious icing. It's beautiful yeah. icing. No, it's awful icing. <laughs> um, Actually, hold on. Here, 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 here. icing. This isn't in our heart takes, but I'm going to throw this in here. Von Stuck is considered one of the best masters in Rezzers because of undergraduates. Yes. Uh, undergraduates yes. in the game. There's a hot take. Best minion in the game. Uh, I'm going to agree with that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> All right. But we can save that for another episode. Uh, that is a that is a big hot take right there. I feel like there's got to be... I, uh, I'm like, there's got to be some other minion that's, but like, it's definitely that makes it there. a good hot take because immediately went, no, that can't be true. <laughs> but it, uh, there, I well, so actual, I think the problem is, I, I think, so yeah, so here's a hot take. We'll just we'll do some on the fly. <laughs> we don't need the that. audience to give us one. <laughs> yeah, we, we get our own hot takes, which is, I think, um, the is, it, is by your side is by your side. I think by our side is bad for the game and should be removed. I th- we actually who is it that I was playing against? Was it you, Owen, or Josh? It was me. Um, oh, it was Herman. Because um, we had a half hour by your side debate. Yeah. Uh, so I think the end uh, end of the debate was when you use by your side. Immediately afterwards, you you discard the card to teleport to wherever it is that you're teleporting. That you cannot take interact actions for the rest of the turn. Well, if Rezzers had any sort of you know, interact or scheme marker tech to speak of, uh, like many factions do. Maybe I would think that this has a little bit of credence to it, but as it is, you mean like Necropunks and Cruelligans and uh, Cruelligans are by your side. Like that's what they're. That's what they have. Uh, don't they have. Don't they have from the shadows as well? Yeah, but who uses it from the shadows? Well, you don't around, use it because you have by your side. <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're actually spoiled here. Yeah, they're all in Rezzers, uh, minus uh, one. By, by your side is a very unsettling abil- ability. Um, it's one of the abilities that you can read on a card, and you're like, oh, okay, and then you see it happen, and you're like, holy crap. <laughs> I, so I think the easy fix is put a range limit on it, right? It's just, I mean, that's always been my request, is because he teleported one dog from one side of the table to the other, and I'm like, that's a freaking magical dog right there. Yeah, it was. I was playing uh, uh, Cooper, and it was Artemis and Uller, uh, and one I forget what I don't know the difference between the two, and I don't think Cooper actually does either. But Uller, uh, only Uller has by your side. Yeah, there you go. But Artemis can uh, use a nimble walk, so you know you can go eighteen inches with Artemis, and then Uller can by your side up to it and walk another twelve inches. But that's beside the point. We're not talking about them right now. <laughs> I have less of an issue with one model. And a faction or one model, uh, like a, an enforcer having it, because when you bring the enforcer, you know it's going to be there. I have more of an issue with three minions having it or potentially six minions in a, in a faction, where now I have to contend with by your side from three different sources. And then when they place, they also get to punch me in the face. That's where I have issues. If, if you want an easy game, just go play 40K, dude. <laughs> Seriously, you don't have to worry about by your side there. Well, I, I would say I would say I can counter that uh, by bringing Anna Lovelace, but oh yeah, she's in the same damn faction. You're in just bitter universe. about that Nexus game where I brought every single counter to Nexus into one place at one time, aren't you? Oh god, I hate it. Ne- playing Nexus into Resurrectionist with Anna was the most annoying game ever. Like I couldn't move anybody when I tried to attack somebody. Terrifying. Like it was. The 
the most annoying game ever. And anyone that's on the uh, boards right now talking about how Cadmus is broken, play that game and realize that you're shit out of luck. I'm feeling like, Jeff, if you can't beat him, why aren't you joining them? <laughs> so, I have I have every Renzer Master. Like, I've played them in ter- – actually, I played them at Nova and got in third place. I heard a hot yeah. take where there's only actually four Renzer Masters anyway. That's true. That was actually one of the hot takes. Um, so, all right, we've gone way far afield from summoning. Uh, any last thoughts on on summoning? Yeah, the, I mean, the problem you run into is they created all these guardrails for summoning, and then they turned around and started breaking them almost immediately. Uh, one of the games I had seen was actually Jeff playing against Owen, where Owen brought along Minaka Ray. You make a couple Katashiro, and all of a sudden he's got these scheme runners running off. Yep. You know, it's fine and dandy for Jeff to talk about, yeah, it's the same exact thing as if I kill a model, except it's not. Owen's spending, you know, he's not interacting with Jeff in order to create these Katashiro to go score these points. He's just doing it on his own. Versus Jeff having to go in and actually interact with Owen in order to kill a model. It's much more difficult frequently to kill a model it is than to summon. And so you start getting away from these summon upgrades. You start getting away from this resource intensity. And once you get away from those points is when summoning becomes problematic. I mean, Summer Teeth Jones is a pretty good example where he just, I don't even know how that summoning works. It just kind of blows out gremlins every which direction. Well, I think that goes back to less an issue with the summoner and more of what you're summoning because uh, Monaco Ray, if she were summoning, uh, I don't know, a Bayou Gremlin a turn, that, 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 you know, that's unreasonable, but it's never going to be a problem. But Katashiro are really, really freaking good. Yep. Like, blown, uh, and once again, you've got that uh, automatic place and attack ability, the uh, made yeah. to kill. And then they can also uh, blown by the wind over and uh, then take a walk and pick up a scheme marker if they're not slow. Like, they are really, really good. So yeah. I think it's more what you can summon, not that you are able to summon. Yep. I'm shocked that people aren't summoning bad models. <laughs> oh, they were. Um, for the longest time, people with uh, were playing Dreamer, and they were summoning uh, Daydreams and things like that. And like, you do realize the Insidious Madness is one of the best minions in the game, right? Probably not the best because uh, that's undergraduates. Yeah. But, <laughs> but uh, it, it, Insidious Madness is a really, really good. Yeah, I mean, Secret Tech right here. If you want to wreck people with Dashiell, only summon the Guild Hounds. Three of them a turn. Get off the podcast. I'm just trying to help you, Jeff, as you convert over to Rezzers. <laughs> yeah, actually, well, yeah, there's another model-specific hot take. Guildhounds, bad. But bad. That's not a hot take. That's bad like everybody agrees. Oh, God. It's so, it's so, it's literally broken the way they work, like as in it does not work. All right. Do we want to go to a break and then discuss this last uh, section? And then, uh, yeah. Yeah, best for last. All right, uh, right. we will see you when we get back. All right, welcome back. Uh, So for our final segment, we're going to take this a little meta. Not so much about the game or the rules, but this is a hot take from someone on this podcast. So Jeff, why don't you lay lay this take on us? All right, and I'm going to not just uh, put my hot take out there, but also give an explanation. I believe that the skill level in Malifaux competitive play has decreased to a great extent between M2E and M3. Now, uh, this I, I don't want this to sound like I'm conceited, uh, and there's going to be a big uh, 
downfall to this, but when M3E came out, uh, I a lot of players in our local meta stopped playing. And uh, they were really good players. When I would go to Nova, uh, it, they were the people that I would look to as competition. This year when I went to Nova, uh, there was hardly any competition there. And no offense to the guys that were there. And I know uh, Cody who showed up there got first and uh, Steve got second. But it was we just never – the three of us never played each other. Uh, and that's just c- kind of how Nova went. But on top of that, I actually switched factions multiple times – throughout the first year of M3E. And my idea was to take a different faction to different tournaments. And I don't know if you guys remember, I took 10 Thunders up to the Halloween Havoc uh, and came in second second or third place there. Uh, I took, um, uh, uh, I think it was Neverborn into Nova, came in third place at Nova. I took, uh, in some local tournaments here, I took uh, Resurrectionists, and uh, Josh and I played the top table, Resers versus Resers. Uh, and it wasn't until I went down to North Carolina, and I decided I was supposed to bring Outcasts, and I decided to instead switch immediately to Arcanists. And I came in, like, fucking 31st or something in that fucking tournament. So that is to show that you can't immediately switch your faction, that you have to do some forethought and planning. And I got really cocky. Like, I was going to these tournaments, and there was hardly any competition. And it was, like, usually came down to, uh, like, so I tied at, or at some point in the, the competition. And it, I felt like generally the the competitive scene had gone down where before I was hoping at Nova, like hoping maybe I'd get the podium where this year, uh, this past year when we went to Nova, it wasn't even a, a question. Like I knew I was going to be on the podium. So uh, I don't know how you guys feel about this. So I'm going to take, wait, wait one second though. Is your hot take that the competitive, the quality of competitive play in the DC area has dropped? Because no, because uh, at the same time we joined the, uh, and through the Vassal tournaments, uh, our group, uh, me, uh, Herman, Owen, and maybe Josh, we joined the, uh, I think it was the North Carolina, South Carolina group in one of their uh, leagues. And we eventually started cannibalizing our own people because we had like climbed the, the rankings so quickly in their, uh, their league. So like the last three rounds, it was all us playing each other. Um, but and I'm not saying that like we're the best uh, people out there and I would love to jump in on some uh, European league games and things like that. But uh, I, I, in general, the DC meta had been one of the best in the country. We travel around to different places and uh, I'm, and it might be uh, have something to do with, uh, you know, the quarantine that we can't do this anymore, but uh, you, you, you think, know, <laughs> It, it, you know, now that, that is one of those things. I've, There's uh, no more tournaments, Jeff. I like literally have no idea what the hell you're talking about. Like I'm trying to figure out your point. If your point is that Travis doesn't play anymore, then yes, you're correct. He doesn't well, play anymore. Travis, Alex, uh, Gern, Gern, uh, right. yeah. Roger. Yeah, you're right. So if your hot take is, is they don't play Malifaux anymore, I agree. Well, well, not not just that. Not uh, you also have. Have you heard anything from uh, the Bills brothers up in uh, the Ohio area? So, you, if that's your hot take, I agree they don't play the game anymore either. And you that's got, not what uh, you said. And you got the New York meta as well. I haven't heard anything out of them. And okay. uh, like, so, 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 but we do. Have they been replaced in any way? I haven't seen anyone from those metas stepping forward. So I will tell you right now. I th- I think Alex Schmidt was the best player in two weeks period. And I think Cody could beat him. I think Cody could beat Alex at his best. And uh, I, have, 
I have a 100 win rate against Alex Schmidt. I would. That's phenomenal. <laughs> I would argue that Andre, out of the Texas meta, would beat Alex Schmidt six out of ten games. That is a game that I want to play. I would like to play against because uh, I question their meta. Uh, so you're exposed. But my point is, though, is that I think we're talking about your exposure. So if your exposure is, is that that DC being one of the dominant metas for the U.S. has dropped. I, I don't disagree with that. I think it. I think that I think that that it is it has spread around. Um, I think the North Carolina meta is stronger than it was in two. I think overall and that's outside of Cody. Cody's not even here anymore. Um, I think we have better players in two E than we do in three than or in three than we did in two. Uh, we saw an emergence of the Texas meta um, as a strong meta, uh, bringing their own play style. I think there's some good stuff happening in Eastern uh, Virginia, um, and there's some good play good players over there. Um, you know, and but we did we it, a lot of it changed. Like we lost completely lost California, right? Like I know there's people playing there, but they're just, they just, you know, we don't see them or hear from them very often. You're starting to hear stirring back in the Northwest again, which is exciting. Um, but yeah, we lost, we lost New York. We lost uh, a lot of strong players in DC, but uh, so I might've misunderstood it, Jeff, when I saw it in the notes, like, do you think M3E is a less competitive game than two? No, I actually think M3E is a more competitive game okay. than two. Okay. Uh, it is harder to score. Uh, uh, like I would uh, be. Skill is more of a factor in three than it was in two. Yes, absolutely. I would beat opponents in two. Like uh, what was the? You went up to ten, right? Like ten to two or something like that. And this almost every game is like a one or two point different. There, you don't have these massive swings unless your opponent was just really bad. Yeah. So I want to jump in here. Uh, and comment on one one piece of this, which is Jeff. Several times there, you said, "Well, when I played at Nova this year, and I was like, my friend, sorry, you're like, last year, Nova this year, <laughs> last but, year." But, but that's but that's the thing, though. Like, what makes this, I think, really tough is that we've had we've lost a year, or I mean, yeah, at this point, you know, almost a year of of play and tournament play, and there's been Vassal. Vassal's been fantastic. I've I've actually probably played almost as much Malifaux, uh, minus when I was you know, moving uh, as as normal, but not in it's a still tournament a fraction. Setting. Yeah, it, it's no. I don't have the tournament settings yeah. that we're used to. Like I used to run tournaments or attend tournaments like every month or every other month. And, so and if I, there was a, if you guys knew a guy that used to get every single tournament result. <laughs> <laughs> then he might be able to tell you that, trust me, it, it's like the there's a big thing. Yeah. No, they're not. Right. And, yeah. and it, um, it, that has a huge effect on things. Um, so it, I mean, it's why I get a little annoyed when people talk about, you know, M3E and have, you know, takes on, you know, M3E overall. Cause I'll argue, we still have no idea what M3E is in the bigger picture. Cause it's just, it's not being played widespread um, in, in across metas, um, and there's not tournaments happening all over the country every, you know, every weekend, let alone all over the world. Um, but I'm glad to hear. So I, I'm So I, I thought that's where you were headed, Jeff, and I'm glad you're not. Cause I agree. I think M3 is a better competitive game than two. Um, so, so let me, let me actually pull in, I'm going to pull in one bonus take. Um, that was, well, that was. Brought up on the forums, uh, didn't wasn't originally on the plan here, but this is about 
luck and the role of luck in the game. Um, so Kyle Bodie, um, host of the Schemes and Stones podcast, uh, had said that, uh, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing here because I don't have it in front of me, but he effectively said that luck plays a much bigger role in the game than players like to admit. Um, was his take um, that it's actually more important and skill is less of a factor. Not, not he doesn't say M3E is less skilled or anything, but just that like in games, luck is a bigger factor uh, than people think. What do you all think about that? And do you think that there's a difference in the level that luck plays between second edition and third edition? I mean, I think that actually dovetails really closely with what Jeff said, because he's talking about how in second edition, all his games were blowouts because he was the man. But now you're going into third edition that he's the man. All of his games are between one and two points. And one to two points can be the difference between that black joker, that red joker, that luck. You also see a lot of people gravitating to crews that smooth out that luck curve. Things like uh, Dreamer with Lucid Dreaming. Uh, we talk a lot about the Explorer Society with the Price of Progress guaranteeing you those triggers. So you're getting that little extra every single time. All the focus on, literally focus on spamming out focus, spamming out those things that help you. All those things that help you kind of mitigate out that luck curve are the things that people consider more powerful. So if you start combining that focus people have on getting rid of luck and the fact that the games are tighter and the fact that you still have you know those things happening, yeah, I can see absolutely where luck has a bigger impact than people will give it credit for. So I'm, I'm just going to put this out there from my standpoint. Um, and then uh, I'm going to go back to a story that uh, I tell a lot actually about Cody Hyatt. But um, first, there are multiple phases to the game and the game starts when you're building your crew. Your crew should be designed to, and luck is a part of the game, but your crew should also be designed to help to minimize how much luck has an impact on, on you. So you should be taking models that help you have some card draw uh, if you need it, uh, if you're, it's not an eight in your crew. You should be looking at things that help you to sculpt your hand, and you should be looking at things that help you, uh, as an example, um, uh, what's the, I forgot the name of the ability, but it lets you draw your uh, a card from your discard pile and replace it with something from your hand. Tools um, for the job. Tools for the job, thank you. Oh, um, I'm back, by the way. Welcome back. Um, and my big thing, uh, and I tell this story a lot, and it's when I watched uh i didn't get to watch any of cody's games at nova but i watched one of his games when he was playing Terra at the north carolina tournament and this is my story that i tell people a lot of what watching him and how i knew that cody was a good player and while he was playing uh, i watched him buy time with Terra summons and just kind of doing uh, bs stuff making his opponent uh you know he his opponent was doing things like hitting him and things like that and Cody kept using useless activations right up until he saw the Black Joker in his discard pile. When he saw the Black Joker, he activated uh, the uh, what's the Scavenger, picked the Black Joker up from his discard pile, threw down like a tin that was in his hand, it's meaning that he traded a tin for the Black Joker. But he knew that Black Joker would no longer be a factor in that game. And the rest of the turn, then he started actually doing things that matter in the turn. And he was just waiting to make sure that that was not a factor anymore. And that's what some of the top players will do. They try to maximize their chances. Will luck be a factor? Yes. But you can work on trying to help to minimize luck. So I have a couple of thoughts on this. One, I'm not real clear um, what Cody's comparing it to, right? So it's a little nebulous when he says uh, luck is more of a factor than people want to give it credit for. 
it's kind of a nebulous comparison. So I'm, uh, that that's a little unclear to me. Um, two, sorry, let me, has let, me, to... let me correct. I found, I found the actual right. whole sentence. So is luck plays a bigger factor in games than most people want to admit, since most players are close enough in skill that they don't outplay the opponent. Exceptions exist, but they're fewer than most think. And that's Kyle, Kyle from Schemes and Stokes. Yes. So, so the idea is, is that there's, I don't know if I, I still don't think I understand the point um, or what's being said. Um, So one, we have to have an RNG, right? There has to be randomness. Um, So, so let's make that, we acknowledge that the game is better because it exists. Um, which is something I, I think one of the biggest things I've learned talking to designers on my podcast is I used to be, let's lower the RNG, let's lower the RNG. And now I'm realizing that the game is better when you have spikes, when you have that random aspect to it, um, it makes for a better game, uh, overall, um, to, um, everybody like we're talking about, we're not talking about dice. Right. And we're talking about mechanically Malifaux mitigates randomness a a ton, a ton. Um, And and that's part of, I think, why so many competitive players are attracted to Malifaux. And a lot of competitive players try Malifaux and stay with Malifaux uh, because of the control hand mechanics, because of uh, a uh, an RNG with a memory by having a deck as opposed to dice where everybody basically has the same randomness, right? Uh, everybody's going to go, everybody who goes through their deck ends up seeing the same cards uh, as everybody else. Um, I remember, and maybe this is tied to it. Cause I remember Kyle um, and correct me if I'm wrong in this, but he was a big proponent of reducing the impact of jokers. Um, I think that, that was a production from like a year and a half ago or two years ago, um, which I disagreed with, but um, it's it, so yeah, like randomness, the, the, the degree that randomness impacts the game greatly increases as the skill level gap decreases. So if that's the point, then I agree. Um, but I'm, but I, I, I skill level, skill level still trumps more than anything. And, and I will argue that that skill level trumps even models and even factions um, and even lists more in Malifaux than in any other game, which is again, part of the reason why I think that I like Malifaux so much um, is that I think that skill level is King. But if the point is, and I'm not sure it's the point, but if the point is as the skill levels, as the gap in skill level decreases, randomness becomes a bigger factor than I agree. Um, But I, if you walk, I want to try to put this without pissing too many people off. So let me think about how I want to word this too late. Um, it has been my experience, generally speaking, not every time that people that spend a lot of time complaining about their cards and complaining about the quality of their flips are not top players. I don't hear top players bitch about the black joker on turn five. So I'll I'll just leave it at that. I will say, just psychologically speaking, I mean, there's this significant evidence that we tend to ascribe success to skill and failure to bad luck. Just just that point I was making, right? (laughs) Exactly. Like, that's 
there's just like a human nature thing, like yep. not to anyone's it's just a psychology thing. So I think that could be playing into this as well. Um, so one thing I say all the time is when someone says to me, and then I lost the game on turn five when I flipped the black Joker, my response to that has always been, why were you in a position on turn five to lose to one flip? That was the problem. Not that you flipped the black Joker. The problem is, is that you did not put yourself in a position to win the game. Josh? Well, they were in the position to win the game. And there are instances where there is literally one card that can cause you to lose the game. I mean, like, it, it is a balance between what you are doing and what your opponent is doing. And I think this gets to the point of the closer you get in skill, the more the luck plays in, into right. the game. So you were talking about how everyone goes through the same deck of cards. So everyone sees the same things. And I don't think that is a particularly fair analysis of the situation because this is compared to two other card games, blackjack versus a single hand of poker in blackjack. You're not necessarily playing based off of a single hand. You're looking for winning on average. So you're seeing everything, you're understanding what's there and you're making decisions based off of what you've seen. You lose some, you win some, each hand is functionally identical. In Malifaux, it's more each flip is sort of like a single hand of high stakes poker. And what changes between that is the exact nature of the stakes. Sometimes a duel has very low stakes. You flip a card, doesn't really matter. You win, you lose. Eh. Other times, a single flip determines a significantly more profound outcome. And you don't have control over when those events occur. That's that. I was with you until you said that last thing, Josh. Well, you don't have control over when your opponent flips the Red Joker. Uh, there's frequently not much you can do about that. And sometimes that's all it takes to lose. Right. But you have control over the stakes of the flips and when the stakes of the flips happen. That's my point is that good players. And this ties into, into Jeff's story about Cody, right? Is that you have, you have to control and know where your deck is and, and decide on, you know, where, where am I going to have these crucial flips happen? It's not completely out of our control. It is also um, not completely in their control. No, of course not. Nobody's arguing it is, right? Yeah. So, And that's what brings the luck into it, is that the luck does become a, a relevant piece right there because you don't have absolute control over the significance of any single flip. Josh, you're ar- arguing against something, I, a point I didn't make. At no point did I say that luck is not a factor. But so you, you're... So when we pull in, give the other guys a chance to jump in here. Jeff, uh, I think you had something. I, I do. Uh, anyone that feels like uh, luck is a more important than skill, luck is. I, I would actually rate it as skill first, uh, model second. Your fucking upgrades third, uh, and luck being uh, the fourth uh, fact, factor in there. If you feel that luck is that big of a factor. Go play somebody like uh, Lucius. Go play somebody like, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, card guy on uh, Ten Thunders. Um, Lynch. Lynch. Go play Lynch. Play these masters that are even uh, Dreamer, where he can uh, start sculpting the, the cards that are in his deck. Play those masters, and if you are still bad after playing those masters, it wasn't luck. It was your play style and your skill. That having been said, this isn't just... Uh, advice if you think that your uh, luck is a big problem in the game. If you feel that a crew is broken 
and that you don't you feel that like they have overpowered abilities, go play that crew. Once you play that crew, you will discover that it has a lot of weaknesses that you never saw because other opponents will show them to you easily. And then you'll be able to move from there and see how, I mean, there's a reason why I own almost every crew in Malifaux. And it's not because I have a whole bunch of money that I like. Well, it is because I, no, no, it's not because I have a whole bunch of money, but it's because I wanted to learn these other crews and, uh, you know, take them to tournaments and see how they did. And you discover a crew's weakness by playing them. That's why I can wholeheartedly say with a couple of exceptions, and we'll talk about this in the next hot takes, I do not feel Explorer Society are broken. I feel like they are very balanced uh, and people just need to learn how to play against them. So let me, let me piggyback on that and just to bring this full circle, your point about playing many factions. The one silver lining of this crazy quarantine pandemic year of, is that more people are on Vassal than ever. And Vassal is the perfect time to try out a crew or a faction without having to buy it, assemble it, paint it, and then discover, oh, oops, I don't actually like these guys, right? Like you you can easily dip your toe in and try out any model in the game in Vassal. So if you're looking for a new faction, if you just want to spitball it, um, it's a lot more fun to do it in Vassal than to use proxy models in in the real world. So do give that a shot uh, if, if you can. The only thing I'll piggyback on that is if you want to become a better player, get out of the habit of blaming the cards. Just take that out from your from your mindset. If you lose a game and you think you lost because the cards look deeper, you you did not play a perfect game and flip the black joker. Now, it is entirely possible for you to lose a game because the broken ass uh, pale rider ran into the middle of your crew on turn three and uh, killed everybody and made them all slow. That is a possibility. But once again, that's my fault and the model's fault. But <laughs> why were you bunched up? Yeah, exactly. 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 That's why I was playing keyword pale rider. All right. Well, uh, I think with that, that's about all the time we've got for today's episode. But uh, Craig, thank you so much for coming to join us. That's it's been a pleasure. We'd love to have you on sometime in the future. Um, and Thank you to everyone who on the weird place who gave us your hot takes. We promise we'll come back to some more of them in a future episode. So thank you so much. We appreciate your support and feel free to chime in on the forums and let us know what are your thoughts? Did we get it right? Did we get it wrong? You decide. Well, either way you need to go to Patreon and give these guys a couple bucks a month. Absolutely. For more hot takes. Hot takes on your hot takes. Only the hottest takes from here. And don't forget, uh, this uh, Craig, he has his own podcast. May not be as popular as ours, but uh, it's the Third Floor Wars. Uh, Go ahead and check them out, too. Appreciate it. (laughs) All right. Take care. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Capital City Crew Podcast. We hope you tune in next time.